You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. We at Represent would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which Sin operates, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You are listening to Represent. We are back for another week and we have a super exciting guest. Who with, with all our tech hiccups, it's a bit of a miracle that you're listening to Represent right now. We've had a bit of a fun time in the studio, but it's we do have a, a very special time. guest. Yes, yeah, so we've got the honour... Uh, Honourable Natalie Hutchins, MP, the current member for Sydenham and the Minister for Education and Women. So welcome to the show, Natalie. Hey, Bridie. Hi, Freddie. We are so excited to have you on. So very relieved yeah. <laughs> that we were able to get it working. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. No worries. Um, I think you get an A-plus for working the technology on this show. Uh, thank you Thanks. so much. Yeah, so you've previously held quite a lot of different ministries. We've got industrial relations, Aboriginal affairs, local government, women and the prevention of family violence, as well as Minister for Corrections, Crime Prevention, Youth Justice and Victim Support. So you've had a lot on your plate in the last few years. <laughs> I've had a variety of portfolios and I honestly think each one of them has given me some really great insights that kind of bring me to education and give me a different perspective um, to maybe uh, ministers who may not have had a chance to work in those portfolios, especially um, the one that I did just before this, which was the youth justice portfolio. And um, I'm constantly, you know, reminded in the back of my mind of the fact that um, kids that are currently in detention, about 90% of them were disengaged from school before coming into contact with the law. And it's, you know, something that's really big on my mind as education minister. Yeah, I can imagine that would really inform the way you come at a lot of issues that we're seeing in the news at the moment. So, um, speaking of the news at the moment... Yeah, <laughs> very fresh news, actually. Yeah, perfectly timed for our interview. Thanks um, for so, timing that for yeah, us. thanks very much <laughs> for that. Um, you've announced just this morning that secondary teaching degrees are going to be free in Victoria because of um, scholarships that the government is going to provide under a large um, education package. Can you tell us about how this decision came about and, you know, the process that led up to this point? Yeah, look, we're in a pretty unique situation across the whole of Australia where we've got what they term, the economists term, full employment, um, which actually means 
it's um, it's impinging on the teaching profession in that people are being poached into other professions away from teaching. And even some of our students that are in university studying to be teachers are being poached into other degrees. So um, we really, you know, went back to the drawing board to um, consult around how we could, um, you know, really attract and help support our, um, our brightest to become teachers and uh, scholarships seem to be kind of the number one thing on um, particularly students' minds. Uh, I heard, I did a bit of a, a roundtable with some um, teacher students earlier this year and they were really clear about the fact that um, doing the amount of placements they need to do over a four-year degree, um, and those placements are predominantly unpaid and um, quite often they may need to travel to do that and they, they didn't have a lot of support in that area. And I also met a lot of students that have made the decision to go part-time rather than full-time, which again was going to affect the kind of pipeline of teachers that we had coming down the line. So we really thought that this was something that we had to step up and do and to make sure that teaching degrees, those that are accepted into the teaching um, streamline of the universities in 24, 25 here in Victoria are going to get that support that they need um, to, to stay at school and uh, in exchange for a commitment to working in the government sector for the first two years of their career and that will give them um, a payment of around $18,000 um, to support them through that time. No, absolutely. It's fantastic to see that and it's fantastic to see the government making strides in that area because, of course, we have seen a lot of staffing issues recently in and the education the sector. And the cost of university as and well as something university. is on a lot of people's minds at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's really great to see strides being made in this. Um, so do we think that this is going to be enough to fill the gaps in the university sector uh, with their staffing issues? Uh, look, it's only one, part, one element um, of... Uh, the package that we've announced today but we do believe that the scholarships will help us deliver a, a, another 4,000 future teachers into the system but of course that's going to take some time and we just can't sit around and wait we need to make sure that um, we're absolutely keeping the teachers that we've got so another big part of the package is a, a commitment around extending our career start program which is a really um quite intense mentoring program um, and development program for newly graduated teachers in schools and it, it matches them with a mentor in the school and gives them some paid time out of the classroom to um, work with their mentor to improve their teaching but also get feedback and hopefully flourish and stay in the profession. And we heard from a couple of teachers today who have been through this program and uh, they really loved loved it and spoke highly of it. So. If we can get that balance right of getting getting more teachers coming into universities but then also retaining teachers as they come out in those first few years where they're at risk of leaving, um, then, then that's an important investment. Yeah, the mentor thing is something I actually hadn't heard of until we had um, Matt Bark on a couple of weeks yeah. ago. He was talking about that and I was like, wow, I had never thought of that. <laughs> it's a great program. So you yeah. did say, oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, no, I was going to say it is a really great program and not a lot of people, unless they've been through it, know about it. But now we're going to extend it um, to just over two-thirds of all schools in the government sector will now be able to run this program. And hopefully, you know, we'll see more teachers choosing to stay long-term in, in, uh, in the profession. 
Absolutely. So you said at the beginning of that that um, this package introduced today is just one part uh, of filling the gaps in the teaching industry. When could we expect to see other parts come into play and what could that look like? So in term um, four, the first week of term four in our schools, we have a package worth um, $32 million, which is going out to support teacher placements in hard-to-staff schools um, with a particular focus on rural, regional and specialist schools. So we'll be paying for their time to do the placement and we'll be paying for their travel and accommodation costs. And the reason we're doing that is because we know if we're planting the seeds early uh, to give the experience to um, our, our young teachers in training to go to a particular rural, regional area or a specialist setting, that they might say, hey, this is something I want to think about long term and, and potentially think about relocating to those areas um, and becoming part of the community. And I know where we've run this program as a trial before, we've seen um, some pretty awesome uh, wraparound from the local community for the teachers that have done placements in these um, really hard to staff areas. And uh, we've seen in some pretty remote areas of Victoria, the community put on a welcome party for the teacher who was doing their placement um, and, you know, gift baskets and a whole um, really big uh, welcome from the community, which has uh, really um, made some of our students think about going there on a long-term basis. Yeah, that would be so, I mean, I can just imagine moving somewhere and being welcomed like that. It would be so, such a relief. That's so sweet. They're putting on parties for them. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> moving on to one of the biggest education stories of every year, um, NAPLAN results. We've got them out last month. Um, Victoria, the education state, <laughs> fared very well. But we've still seen 7.1% um, of students needing additional support what are we doing as a state to ensure that these students aren't falling behind, particularly these regional and rural students that are more likely to be below standard? Well, look, I'm really proud of our NAP plan results. And as you said, we're leading the nation either first or second rankings of 16 out of the 20 domains. But I just I met just earlier today with the Vic SRC representatives, um, so the student executive from across all the state. And, and one of the things they really put on the agenda with me is that you know when when are we going to stop um, just judging success by results and look at what sort of humans we're developing? And I thought that was a really um, really important conversation to hear from student leaders. And I think um, all of the investments that we're making now into our schools, particularly around supporting better wellbeing and mental health, and also having our tutor um, learning initiative where we have small groups targeting those students that really do need a hand up um, and are in the lowest categories um, of reporting, get that opportunity to be lifted up and also, you know, supported if they've got... Um, challenges at home or challenges with their mental health and making sure that we are, are getting on top of those issues because I know as a mum that you don't uh, get good results and, and good engagement from your kids within their education if they're not engaged and happy and you have to be able to make sure kids are really well connected into their school community and accepted in order for them to succeed. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true, I think. Yeah, um, definitely. Speaking as two people who have gone through school recently. We, we have done that, <laughs> only two years and one year, respectively, for Bridie and for myself and Bridie. Yeah, that's the other side the, of the, respectively. There we go, yeah. <laughs> um, so, of course, um, of course, with results, we do see that regional students are more likely to fall below standards than metropolitan students. And, of course, this package that you introduced today is going to help bring... Uh, more resources to that, but do you think this sort of trend of regional students being a bit, a little bit more behind than their metro counterparts, do you think it's indicative of a resource or talent inequality between the metro and regional areas? Oh, look, there's still work for us to do, and access to subjects is uh, a continuing issue for secondary school students, and we want to see what we can do to break down those barriers to make sure that all all students have access to all of the subjects they want to be able to do, particularly in the later years of high school. Um, but yes, there are challenges, but I think we really are doing quite well when when you compare our rural regional students' results to other states and territories, we are, we are miles ahead. And I think that's because we do work really closely with our um, leaders in the rural, rural and uh, regional uh, education setting. They do a lot of lobbying around needs and we've really made sure that we can invest both in our teacher workforce and in our um, capital, our actual facilities at schools as well. But I think that the best thing that we've done as a government to support our rural teachers in particular has been the opening up of seven rural and regional centres for um uh, they're called academies, which are academies that are doing uh, leadership and training and learning for our teachers uh, to be able to upskill during their careers. And there's all different uh, levels of engagement that they can have. But most importantly, it is also a place for them to be able to come together and work together across all of the um, sectors. So whether they're from the Catholic sector, independent or government, they can actually come together. And I just got to open the one in Mildura um, you know, just 10 days ago and um, it was a fantastic vibe having all the teachers from that region being able to visit the centre and see that there's a place that's theirs uh, to be able to come together and learn and focus on their career and share their teaching experiences with others. Yeah, that sounds like something that um, would be kind of taken for granted in a metro area, whereas in a rural or regional community, kind of would be a completely different situation. It's a lot harder to foster that connection, I guess. So it's good to have those sort of like hubs, those academies, which is mm. really great. Are there plans to open any more of those anytime soon? Oh, look, we're still in the stages of finishing the last two um, and getting them open. So not at this stage, but we want to see what success um, these hubs have as they as they go forward and what outreach and where we might have, uh, you know, missed key areas. But I've got to say it's a big game changer when someone from Mildura doesn't have to do that long-haul drive or fork out money for a flight um, to be able to do a course in Melbourne and they can do it in their local area and, you know, still be home for dinner. And that's a, that's a really big game changer, I think, in a whole lot of... Uh, rural and regional areas. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like around this time every year, we always start to hear this little rumbling about early uni offers. Um, Been there, done that. Exactly. <laughs> they've started to come out now. 
um, based on students' year 11 results and their co-curricular participation. So what are your views on kind of the ATAR system? Obviously the VCE is being overhauled a bit in the next few years, but like you said, how can we make um, someone's ability, uh, someone's sort of future after school be less dependent on the number that they're assigned at the end of year 12? I think the message I'd love to get out to any um, VCE students or VCAL students or, or v vocational major students that are out there or anyone doing VET that might be listening in, you know, is to say that there are pathways and those pathways, sometimes our ambitions change from when we're 16, 17 to when we're 21. Um, and it means that, you know, there are pathways for you to take that could lead you to the career that you want. And sometimes that doesn't always involve university. Um, university isn't for everyone. And for some people, they may think it's not for them and then they change their mind at a later stage. So we're setting up an education system that gives people choice and pathways. Um, and I know, you know, when I was 16, other than, you know, I did have a passion for politics back then, um, I still didn't know exactly what I was going to be when I grew up. So I just went with subjects that I loved and that I um, thought were, were good and that I was going to get through year 12 in doing. Um, there's some people out there that get pushed by others, particularly their parents, to do subjects that, that may not suit them, that might be just focused in on getting that ATAR result. And um, I really would love to see students um, just to follow their own passions and do what they like and that and they would, you know, be very well placed to succeed in what their career choices are. And I'm really pleased that we have the vocational major which actually gives uh, an alternative pathway to an ATAR but gives uh, students an opportunity to get a taster in different professions, whether that be business or hospitality or engineering or construction. Those vocational majors, we've designed them to link to industries where we have real need um, for people to work. And that's um, that, I think, is a great pathway in itself. No, yeah. absolutely. I definitely agree with that. And of course, like the vocational major and sort of rolling uh, VCAL and VCA together, that's a pretty recent thing that's been happening. Um, how have you been hearing the feedback? How's it been received? And are there still sort of changes being made to how that's happened? How's that been going? Well, look, we've had uh, 22,000 students enrol uh, in the first year of it running. And look, there's probably, you know, areas that we need to iron out in terms of um, making sure that we've got the right staff in the right schools to deliver uh, the courses and opening up opportunities for if that subject, you know, if there's a particular subject that's not offered in your school, making sure that you can do it at a neighbouring school or through a local tech that might be uh, delivering it. But for the first time, um, every public school in Victoria is offering a vocational major, a second pathway other than VCE. And there were schools um, that weren't doing that before. And we know that, you know, there's, there's um, still a good focus on building li literacy and numeracy within this. Is it at, at a university standard? Perhaps not, but it is for a work-ready standard. And there's also um, subjects in relation to being work-ready and personal development skills, which are really important. And then there's a third pathway and that's the VET programs and that's um, being able to do the hands-on um, 
learning when it comes to um, professions like um, elect- you know, being an electrician or a plumber or a hairdresser or working in the care sector where you can get that hands-on learning um, or even early childhood. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I did want to talk a little bit about uh, school refusal because I think it is something that we see from a lot of kids who aren't exactly passionate about what they're learning at school, but also it's uh, it can come down to kids not being able to access school. Can you talk a little bit about school refusal? Because I think we've seen a bit of a trend upwards recently with that. Look, we, we do still have, in the bigger scheme of things, we still do have a low percentage of absenteeism in Victoria compared to other states but that's not to say that there are students that find school challenging and uh, long-term disengagement can quite often be detrimental to their future opportunities so we want to make sure you know kids do feel engaged with school and can uh, be prioritised for maybe additional services that they might might need or being able to speak to someone at school that can help them with their challenges. And quite quite often anxiety plays a huge role in school refusal um, and having those supports now across our primary and secondary school and having wellbeing leaders employed in our schools mean that we do have a resource uh, for students to be able to go to and get that extra help. Then we have other programs like the Navigator program, which is for kids that are, are highly disengaged to be able to work one-on-one uh, with um, someone that can really take into consideration what their issues are and work with them. And then, of course, we also have an alternative school setting, like a flexible learning option, uh, where they do some really great work with kids that have just decided that they can't return to the mainstream system uh, but they want to continue their education and we often see uh, kids thrive in those um, programs in those alternative school settings and uh, right now we're having a look at how those settings are operating and and how we can expand them because we know that there is a demand out there for more places um, that are kind of aligned with that sort of schooling. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard a lot in recent years, um, well, so not really years, but just the last kind of year or so, yeah. people are really demanding these sort of other ways of going through school. Like alternative, alternative education. There's those and, Steiner schools, mm. I believe, that are all, all a form of alternative education, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah, flexible no, schools, um, quite a lot of them have different different names and some are run by the independent sector some are run by government schools but um i think they do a tremendous job at re-engaging kids who uh have uh not been able to go to mainstream school and they are able to thrive there and that build confidence the other thing that we're doing which i'm really proud of which we were able to announce out of the may budget was we're funding an organization called i can i don't know if you've ever heard of them but they're a neurodiverse uh, not-for-profit organisation that is run by um, teachers and leaders that are on the spectrum themselves to do reach out uh, into primary schools and secondary schools and run a program just for kids who are neurodiverse and they really build, work with them to build their mental health and their confidence and their resilience and they really help kids who are at danger of disengaging from school, even as young as grade three. And um, I've been able to sit in on one of their programs and, oh, what a 
game changer that that program is and we've just taken it from running um, across about 50 schools to being able to be run across 200 schools and I'd love to see it even grow further. Absolutely yeah I mean that sounds like such a rewarding sort of thing to be involved in. Um, Last month, the Children and Young People with Disability Australia organisation published reports that showed that neurodivergent children are disproportionately affected by bullying and weren't supported by teaching staff, having enrolments denied. Generally, they weren't being properly cared for. What's being done about these reports other than this sort of ICANN organisation? You know, are there other government initiatives? Yeah, and that, it makes me so angry when I hear that because, you know, every child deserves their place at school and they deserve to be treated equally. And for kids that are already, you know, struggling in life with um, being neurodiverse and really, <laughs> you know, trying to make sense of the whole world, they need to know that their schools are a safe place. And um, we've been working as a government uh, before I came into the role. We, ro- we started rolling out a program called Disability Inclusion into our mainstream schools to make sure that um, our mainstream schools are inclusive because it was something that we were hearing loud and clear from, te- from um, parents and from students that it wasn't happening, that it wasn't a choice for them to be able to go to a mainstream school because they just didn't offer the support and the service all the respect and so we need to change that and we are doing that school by school and we're rolling out um, education for our teachers, education for our student leaders um, and for students as well um, about dealing with the, the diversity that they would experience with kids being on the spectrum and with disabilities and then also um, what we're doing is coming up with individualised plans for the student who has the need and we're working with them and their parents and their teachers to come up with a learning plan and goals. Um, and it's the first time this has been done in Australia. We've we've rolled it out now and have uh, across 850 schools, mainly primary schools, um, and that will be expanding again over the next two years. And so far we've got just over 3,000 individualised plans that have been put together with a, with a student voice at the heart of it. And I think that's the most important thing uh, that we can do in showing respect is, is to roll out this program. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be really great to see that kind of expand um, over absolutely. the next couple of years, I think. Changing tack a little and moving internationally, which is exciting, um, Sweden has recently <laughs> announced a new emphasis on physical books and reading and writing skills like handwriting as opposed to the use of tablets and computers that we've seen kind of really expanding in the last few years. Do you think there's too much emphasis on screen use in Victorian schools? No, I think that's a good balance. I mean, I'm in classrooms pretty much every day of the week and um, particularly in primary schools, we're seeing the use of little mini whiteboards um, and uh, so it's reducing paper usage, uh, but it's not digital and it's just, kids utilising their handwriting using a small whiteboard um, and the kids love it and um, I think it, it becomes their almost like their little um, accompaniment in, in the classroom but then there's also lined up on the table uh, a range of books and diaries that, that kids can access directly on their tables uh, next to them. I think maybe when you, when you mention overuse of devices um, 
that's probably more, you know, potentially an issue in secondary school. But at the same time, you know, we've got some pretty amazing technology rolling out with AI. And I would really love to see our students engage in that um, using AI for the benefit of their own education and, and our teachers as well. Yeah, I mean, I actually definitely agree about secondary schools. I think oh, that yeah. I feel like I was just on my laptop for all of last year when I was in year 12. Oh, same, yeah. Well, I guess that's because, oh, were you affected that much by COVID? I guess you I mean, wouldn't 10 and have 11. been too much. Yeah, 10 and 11, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, Nat, it's been great to chat. We're going to let you go in a second, but we do have a question that we ask everyone as they come through the show. It's a bit of a represent classic. Uh, how would you recommend that the young people listening who are interested in politics get their start? Whatever they're, whatever they're passionate about or if they see an injustice, do something about it. When I, Can I tell a quick story? Absolutely. Um, yeah, when I was 16, um, I found out that the local council was going to uh, privatise and sell off our local pool and I was pretty oh, outraged cool. by that wow. because our, yeah, our family never went on holidays. We spent the summer at the pool, the public pool. And so my brothers and I, we formed a petition, we door knocked all the streets around us um, and we got people involved and I think my mum was ready to kick us out of home when we put our <laughs> local, um, our, our home phone number in the newspaper oh. and said, you know, call us. Oh, no. This is before mobile phones. Yeah, and so then our home phone was ringing all the time. Um, but people got on board and we got hundreds of signatures and we actually got 150 people to come to the council meeting and uh, we managed to stop the sale of the pool. Wow, so you're if you're passionate that. about something... Yeah, if you if you're passionate about something, do something about it, and it, it can you know can be a little team of three, or it can be you know just yourself. But um, I just encourage anyone that you know is passionate about something to to do something about it. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great note to finish that's on. That's amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. I'm amazed you got 150 people at the council meeting. That's incredible. I know. I've never been to a council meeting, so... I have been to one, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it was fun. What, what, why did you go? Uh, uni assignment. But, oh. yeah. <laughs> Not was, quite as motivated. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us this afternoon. Um, we've really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, you're actually the first state minister that's come on the show this year. Congratulations. So you get a gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> My my best friend at high school did RMIT journalism. So oh damn, <laughs> there, there we go. Brady's a trumpet yeah. player. So. Yeah, I don't go here. <laughs> She's here anyway. <laughs> but I'm Fantastic. RMIT journo, so that's great to hear. Thank you. <laughs> All right. No worries. Thanks so much Thanks for that. Thank you. Time. Thank you. Thank All you. right, you're Bye. listening to represent. Bye. You've been listening to a Sin Media podcast, where young people run the show.